we all have moments in life that we would look back on as turning points, decisive kind of moments when whatever circumstances took place, things changed, pathways changed. For Robin and I, one of those happened many years ago. We were at a little church in Delaware. It was a Wednesday night prayer meeting, a meeting that we originally weren't thinking we were even going to be able to attend, and yet God got us there, and he used that, and some missionaries who came by and showed some slides, which dates how long ago this was, and God just used that to change our lives and our career paths at that point. It was just one of those turning point moments. In the Gospel of John, chapters 5 and 6 represent something of a turning point in John's Gospel. It's the book we have been working our way through. We paused before Christmas, but when we get to chapters 5 and 6, it is what appears to be a turning point, and I say appears because the the reality of it is it is all part of God's plan, and it is, in fact, forecast what happens here as early as chapter 1, verse 11, when it says, He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The rejection of Jesus Christ begins in earnest when we get to chapters 5 and 6 of the Gospel of John. Before Christmas, we paused at the end of chapter 4, and we had already seen that there was some, some skepticism toward Jesus arising amongst the Jewish leaders. There were some, some concerns about his sort of rising popularity at times, but it is here in chapter 5 that that turning against him will really come on in a very full way from the Jewish religious leadership. Just the first verse of John chapter 5, if you would look at that with me, says, After this... There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So John chapter 4, when we began there, I just want to review for a moment. Jesus was in the area of Jerusalem, was around Judea. Just remind us again, the southern area, Jerusalem there. So Jesus was ministering around that area. There was some sense of, of tension, if you will, some rising conflict where Jesus was beginning to gain popularity, and so the Jewish leaders were beginning to get concerned about him, and this was not yet the time for an escalation of that conflict. And so Jesus, as we recall, leaves Jerusalem, goes up to Samaria, to this city of Sychar, and it is there that he has the encounter with the woman at the well that leads to what is essentially a revival in this village of people who come to faith and see Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. He left from there. We followed in chapter 4 as he goes back to his home region of Galilee, and it is there that we see the healing that takes place of an official's son who is near the point of death. Jesus speaks that healing when he's not even there with the son, and the son is healed. As chapter 5 begins then, John starts with those words, after this, so leaving sort of an indefinite period of time that has taken place since the end of chapter 4. This period of time has passed, and he says a Jewish feast is underway. John will typically identify what feast it is, Pentecost or Passover, um, and, and typically the feast, the, the connection we'll, we'll see when he identifies those feasts that Jesus in his teaching, something that he says, sort of echoes back a reflection, how he is the fulfillment, if you will, of that feast. He doesn't identify it here, so presumably the, the account that he's about to give doesn't really, the, a feast doesn't bear on it as much. Jesus, simply in keeping with what is normal practice for a pious Jew, participates, goes to Jerusalem to take part in whatever this feast is. So let me pick up again in verse 2. It says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, 
which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Let me pause there for just a moment. It was only in the 19th century that archaeologists first started to discover what they thought were the remnants of this pool that's being described, this pool of Bethesda near the Sheep Gate, thought they had seemed to uncover what might have been it, and then in the 1960s really is when they finally, archaeologists confirmed that this indeed fit the description. So there are times when you'll read much older commentaries on this that will sort of say, well, this, you know, we just don't know where this is, and that's because the discoveries are really more recent, relatively speaking, in terms of identifying where this place is. The Sheep Gate is mentioned in the book of Nehemiah when they're rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, uh, the Sheep Gate is one of those places that's being rebuilt. As best as we can tell from the descriptions in Scripture and from what the archaeologists have found, Sheep Gate would have been up here. So the temple is this large structure here in Old Jerusalem. The Sheep Gate would have been the place where, uh, makes sense here, sheep from out in the, the valley nearby were brought in for sacrifice to the temple. So they brought them into the temple through that gate. And then all of this fits in terms of what's been discovered north of the old city being this area here, which was where the remains have been found of this pool of Bethesda. Uh, that matches with the archaeology. It fits in terms of its location being near to that gate. So it's described as a pool with five roofed colonnades is what the, the picture is given to us. If we could look at that image of the the pool for just a second. You can see the four perimeters and then the one across the center essentially dividing it up into two pools. So the colonnades all around there, roofs over them, underneath which people could lie and could get out of the weather. The uh, thinking being, at least from what they found in archaeology, one, the one to the north a little higher than the other one, and that, the, that one was fed by a spring, and the water would come into there, and then also down into the second pool, which was kind of a reservoir for that. And verse 3 tells us there were multitudes of people, blind, lame, paralyzed, people with all sorts of different afflictions, sickness, lying around the pool under the shelters of the roof, and they are there believing in the power in that pool to provide them some form of healing. This is alluded to, and we'll read it more carefully in a moment, but verse 7, when this sick man is talking to Jesus, he says, there's nobody here that can put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. That's the time when one needs to get put in the pool, and, and that's when he believes, and that seems to be the customary belief, that that's when the healing takes place. All of that leads to a, a, a point of background here that may come up as you're looking at the text, and you may have the question, where is verse 4? If you're looking at any translation other than the King James, in all likelihood it goes from verse 3 to verse 5, and it may include a footnote, may or may not, and verse 4 seems to be missing. It's in the King James. It's not in the English Standard that I'm reading from and a lot of modern translations, and probably for good reason. Let me just talk just briefly about when they translate this Greek manuscripts into our English Bibles, into the, the translations that we have. It's a process called textual criticism. It sounds like a bad thing because it's got the word criticism in it, but what it is is evaluating the, the fragments and the manuscripts, all of the, the documentation that is ancient copies of the New Testament and taking and looking at that and bringing it together into the, the translations that we have. There is no, should be, no nervousness on our part about the preservation of Scripture because there are more than 5,000 
either complete manuscripts of the New Testament or fragments of the New Testament. It is a number that is staggering compared to any other ancient document. There is nothing that has that level of, of manuscript evidence to back it up, ancient manuscript evidence. The closest to that is under 1,000. The closest historical ancient document has less than 1,000 manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts. So it is an astonishing number that archaeologists have found over the years. And the point in that is trying to look back at the oldest most complete, if you will, of those manuscripts, looking at what we have and trying to date them back to get as close to the original writings as possible. So over time, archaeologists continue to make discoveries. At the time in the 1600s when the King James was written, the manuscripts included, some of them, some did, included verse 4. The, the verse 4 would seem to be, understand, let me back up even just a second more, when those manuscripts were copied, when the New Testament was taken from the original writing to copies, as we know, it was all done by sight and pen. There was no way of photocopying that. It was just a matter of scribes who would sit for hour after hour after hour reading and writing and reading and writing. And so there's a human error factor that is guarded by not only the providence of God, but by the reality that we have the magnificent manuscript evidence that we do. That's what one of the reasons that we have such security in looking at our Bibles and knowing we are reading what was indeed inspired and given by God. But that verse 4, that's not in a lot of your modern translations. I'll read it to you from a footnote from out of one. says this, An angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. It would seem that, and, and we do understand this from early on in church history, that there was some sort of tradition that was believed that sort of dealt with this question that came out of verse 7 when he says, I've got no one to put me in when the water is stirred up. And people said, well, what does that mean when the water is stirred up? And apparently some story built up that, well, God sends an angel who sort of stirs the water, and that's the moment when you get in and when the healing takes place. And that was picked up and, and it seems like inserted into the text at some point throughout history. Remember, again, they didn't have verse numbers. They were a, a later edition, so it wasn't like somebody had to say, well, we're missing a verse 4 here, so I'll put this line here. It was just an, a line that was inserted and that somebody else copied and that got carried on. Earliest and best manuscript evidence says no, that actually wasn't in there. Here's, here's what I just want to make sure you remember on all of this, because there are people who are critics of the Word of God who will say, see, you can't trust the Bible, because right there, where's your verse 4? Any of these passages, and there are very few of them, but this, we'll see it again when we get to John chapter 8. There's a story in the beginning part of John 8 that is, um, there's some of the same happening here as far as it was added, seems to be later on. Anytime you come across that, it has absolutely no bearing on any significant biblical doctrine. And so in this case, whether an angel came down and stirred up the water or whether it was a naturally occurring stirring or even by God's providence that it occurred at a particular point in time when a spring bubbled up in some way, it's not entirely clear from the text, and it's not something that has any bearing on the story. That's not what the, the, the story is trying to focus our attention on, and it doesn't change our understanding of the fundamental doctrines of the truth of the Word of God and the salvation that is brought through Jesus Christ. So I think we can read that with a, a good level of comfort 
Um, and, and I'm going to pick up, if you will, now in verse 5, and, and we'll see kind of the heart of the story here. Verse 5 says, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Let's pause there for a moment. We are into the heart of the story. For some reason that is not spelled out in the text, Jesus chose to stop at the pool of Bethesda. He chose to walk into that area where there were all of these sick people and to particularly go to one man who was by the pool who had some kind of debilitating sickness. We would presume it is paralysis by his explanation that he couldn't get into the pool himself and there was no one to help him. And it says that he had it for 38 years. Life expectancies were not that great at this point in time, so it's not a stretch to imagine that this guy had been paralyzed for his whole life, that he is now at 38 or thereabouts. This man does not know Jesus. That is evident in the text when they ask him, well, who said this to you? And, and he's clueless. This man showed no faith in Jesus. He did not ask Jesus to heal him. His only faith at that point was in that water, that somehow if God was to work and heal him, it would have to come through him getting into the water at just the right time. Despite all of that, Jesus heals the man. Immediately, Jesus speaks, and this man is up, and he is walking. And he meets religious leaders, Jewish rabbis. A lot of the preaching around this text tends to focus on the, the Sabbath issue that's raised, the controversy over the, the Sabbath and what can be done on the Sabbath, and that is certainly a key issue in all of this. There is no Old Testament prohibition against carrying one's mat on the seventh day of the week on the Sabbath. But what's happened behind this is over centuries, the rabbis have taken God's commandments in the Old Testament, the, the clear Mosaic law, and have now said, let's come up with other ways so that we can make sure we keep all of these rules and we can prove who's right and who's wrong. And so they came up with 39 categories of remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, taking that simple command and now putting it into sort of definition as to this is what that means to remember the Sabbath. So for instance, you couldn't look in the mirror into any reflective surface on the Sabbath because you might perchance see a gray hair and you might be tempted to pluck it out, which would be a form of work, was the argument of the rabbis. Um, you could spit on the ground, but you couldn't scuff it with your sandal because the spit was one thing, but then you were starting to work the soil if you took that. And who knows, something might grow because you added moisture to the soil and began to sort of rub it in. And so that was... 
we look at that and that is just mind-blowing to us that people were held to this kind of a strict standard and yet they were because that's what you believe ultimately when you move people toward a works-oriented kind of salvation. When you tell people what you do and what you don't do is what ultimately is going to make you right before God, then you can understand the authority these leaders had in terms of setting up rules and saying you can't do this. And so this particular case fell under the category of you're not allowed to carry something off of your property on the Sabbath. You could lift up a chair in your house and move it from one place to another, but you couldn't lift it off your property. There's actually recordings from rabbis debating the issue then of if we set this, is it okay for God to uphold the universe on the Sabbath? I mean, that is, if if you're going to take this logically, then, then you do have to have that argument. And they finally came to the conclusion, well, Actually, the whole universe is God's property, so he's not actually stepping outside of his property, so it's okay. It was not okay for this man to be carrying this mat. And so they confront him. And the confrontation escalates when he says, I was healed, and the man who healed me told me to pick it up and carry it, because now that raises a new question. Who is healing on the Sabbath? Who would do this when they've got six other days of the week when they could heal somebody? Who is it that is healing? And the guy says, I have no idea. He slipped away right after he did it, and I I don't know who he is, which I think as we go through this, I think that's just helpful to remember that, that, that Jesus is doing far more here than healing because if he ever wanted to put on a demonstration of healing, he would have stayed at the pool of Bethesda and just lined people up and one by one performed healings. But instead... He goes away so quickly that this man is not even quite sure who he is, doesn't know anything about him, and it's because Jesus has a much higher purpose in all of this than just that instance of healing. So, verse 14 then, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. That's a fascinating statement. So some commentators say, here we've got this man who has come into the temple area. Remember, we saw the map before. He's come from the Pool of Bethesda, probably down through the Sheep Gate. He's in the temple. Perhaps he's in that area to praise God, to give thanks to God. Perhaps he is there for some sort of ritual cleansing that he has not been able to take part in at all. Perhaps it's just as simple as he has come down through the gate and is in the grounds around the temple. And and no doubt some people recognize this guy. If he has been paralyzed for 38 years, he has also had a life just outside of that pool area and been helped by others. People have come across him and suddenly he's walking and carrying this mat. So there's the the possibility that he is just engaged in conversation with people there on the temple grounds. Either way, Jesus seeks him out and he speaks to the man and says, it's great, you are healed. See, you are well. Now, stop sinning. Don't sin anymore or something worse could happen. He sought him out specifically to warn him about sin and to warn him that something worse than what he's already experienced could happen. That's interesting because it draws a connection of sorts with sin and sickness. This seems to be one of these places where Jesus is at least alluding to the fact that something that this man has experienced has somehow been connected in some way to sin, or at very least could get worse because of sin. What could possibly be worse than having 38 years of being unable to move without help? Well, 
the wrath of God against an unrepentant sinner is far worse. And that is what, what Jesus is bringing to this man. Jesus is, is warning this man that what you've experienced all of your life may seem terrible, but to persist in unrepentant sin will lead you down a far worse path. It's important for us to keep this in the context of the New Testament. No, he's not, he's not saying if you commit one sin, it's all over, the whole healing ends and things get worse. But what he's talking about is what he often talks about in his teaching, and that is those who stubbornly persist in sin, who do not acknowledge their sin, who do not repent from their sin, who do not turn to God for forgiveness. And so sin becomes the pattern of their life rather than the righteousness that is from God. And so the warning here is if you are going to persist in sin, you need to know that something worse could happen. This, this connection, sickness-sin connection, might make us a little uncomfortable. Ordinarily, we're a little shy about putting those two together, other than in the, the, the broad and very true sense that we live in a fallen world. That ever since sin entered the world through Adam, sin, through, yeah, sin entered through Adam, Sickness and all of the consequences of a fallen world have spread throughout creation and therefore the creation longs for redemption. The creation understands that it has been broken by sin and that disease and all that accompanies that is a consequence in, in general terms from sin. This is a little more direct than that. You persist in sinning, something worse could happen. When we get to John chapter 9, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in depth when we get there, there's that story of the disciples and Jesus walking down the road. There's a man who is blind. He's been born blind, and the disciples say to Jesus, who sinned in this case? Was it this man or was it his parents that caused him to be born blind? And so in John 9, 3, Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's easy in that passage taken on its own in John 9 to be a little critical of the disciples and think, why would they ask that? That seems like such an unkind question of them to ask who sinned and who's responsible at this point. But if they were familiar with this story at the Pool of Bethesda, it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility that sinful behavior can lead to serious consequences. In John 9, Jesus says no one. This was, this was a blindness that God ordained in order to bring glory to himself, and then Jesus healed the man. Like I said, we'll talk about John 9 later, but just to interject at this point for when you talk to that person who reads that and says, do you believe in a cruel God who would actually ordain blindness for somebody just to bring glory to himself? I, I would suggest that your response at that point is, what have you or I done to deserve the gift of eyesight? What, what is it that, that we've done that somehow we should be able to see? The, the temptation always on these kind of things is to look for cruelness or inconsistency in God. The wonder is not the man's blindness. The wonder is that some of the most God-hating, rebellious sinners in the world enjoy the common grace of sight, and they experience the world and see it and feel it and touch it in a world that they have denied the creator of, have rejected him and rebelled against him, and yet he has allowed them to enjoy what he has made. That's what's really the startling question to ask. But, but back to this question at hand. Jesus didn't condemn the disciples' question in John 9. He didn't say sickness is never related to sin, just, just not here. In chapter 5, the, the warning says the connection is at least possible. All of our sickness and all of our suffering present us with opportunities to glorify God, present us with opportunities to worship him, 
to testify of his goodness and to rely on him more. But there are times, just like that warning that's given in that communion passage in 1 Corinthians 11.30 that says, some among you are sick and some have sleep have fallen asleep, which is a, a euphemism for death. It is a reminder that there are some who, as professing believers, have carried on in, in sinful behavior in some way that has led to even sickness and, in some cases, death. All of that, I think, should be a lesson to us to not waste our sickness. When, when painful afflictions occur and we all experience them either personally or through loved ones dearly, it's a good time to examine our hearts and to say, is God seeking to call my attention in, in any way to something? It, it, it's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 when he said, let a man examine himself. Take that opportunity to see what God is doing. It would be foolish to automatically assume or dismiss a sin-sickness connection. God may be leading me to repent in a particular area. By the same point, the flip side of that is God does not seek to exasperate us either and to sort of frustrate us. And, and so the, the counter to this is Job's counselors speaking to this righteous man and saying, come on, Job, dude, what did you do to cause all this? this? This somehow must be your sin. Nobody gets this kind of mess unless they've done something really bad, so why don't you just figure out what it is and, and, and just confess it? When we know from the book of Job that, that that was God very much at work in all of that to demonstrate his own sovereign greatness and to show how Job would continue to rely on him even through that. So I just offer that in, by way of balance that we ought to explore when we are sick and see what God is seeking to do through that. We ought to, it's fine that we pray for healing and for God to be at work, and it's great that we ask God to use our sickness for his glory, to use that in some way to be a, a testimony or something that would work to demonstrate his goodness to others. So let me read on. He's come to the man now in the temple and said this warning to him. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Look, here's the guy. Verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the man's response, first of all, is really kind of fascinating in that we don't see a record here of gratitude. Perhaps there was, and John chose not to include it, but there's certainly nothing in Scripture that talks about his gratitude to Jesus. But rather, once Jesus has re-identified himself, the man then goes back to the Jewish leaders who he knows are upset about him carrying the mat, and he's already blamed them and said, hey, I figured out the guy, it's Jesus. You should go talk to him, because he's the one that caused all this. That leads then to this confrontation that we've just read between the Jewish leaders and Jesus, and the beginning of the the escalation, if you will. And this, this now, this moment, sets up what will carry us through chapter 5 and then repeat again in chapter 6. We go through chapter 5, there will be this glorious um, dialogue, Jesus speaking in, in the rest of John chapter 5, that will be a, a result of this encounter. Think for a moment back to the, the theme verse of the Gospel of John. We've talked about it at the beginning of this study, John 20, 31. The, the, the verse where John identifies and says, these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life 
in his name. It is the word of God telling us this is the purpose. This is why John's gospel is included for you. It is to show you miraculous signs that identify Jesus as the Son of God and that by believing then in him and who he claims to be, you might have life. No one should come away from John's gospel thinking, oh, that Jesus is a really good guy. That Jesus is merely a, a miracle worker. Yeah, yeah, I'll give that. Or, or a really great teacher of love and peace. Or, or just a really fabulous historical figure. And limit it at that. Because that is not what Jesus claimed for himself. That is, that is sort of man's twisting of the, of the Gospels to try to come up with some way to be kind to Jesus but not deal with the truth. From the beginning of this Gospel to the end, from verse 1 when it said, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, John's point is to keep putting in our face and saying, reader, listen. He is not claiming to be some, some decent, ordinary, kind, loving guy. He is claiming to be God with the authority to judge your sin and to offer you forgiveness and to bring you eternal life. And you must take him at his own terms. He is no ordinary man. You cannot dismiss Jesus of Nazareth as anything less than God in flesh because Jesus himself made exactly that claim. Here we are at a, a point in the conversation when he is now face-to-face -face with Jewish religious leaders who have the power, perhaps they, they still need Rome's help to condemn him to death, but they certainly have the power to rule a judgment on him in front of all the Jewish people and say, this man is anathema to you, and, and condemn him in some way. And in their face, Jesus doesn't back down, he doubles down about his identity. Not only do you have what we just read, which we'll look at more in a second, but, but look ahead at verse 19 for just a moment. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Isn't that a remarkable statement? That is Jesus saying, listen, I... We would think in terms of we are seeking to be ambassadors, we're seeking to be Christ-like, we're seeking to live out a godly life. It, it's not that. Jesus isn't saying, I came to do godly things in front of you and to give you examples of what God might look like. Jesus says, whatever the Father does, I do likewise. So whatever you want to attribute to God, you may now attribute to me. That is just a profound claim at that point, and the Jewish leaders understand it perfectly, because it says they went from persecuting him in verse 16, which probably looked like sort of verbal condemning, oh, this is that carpenter's son from Nazareth, this is that guy who's untrained, he hasn't been to all of the, the good rabbi schools, he doesn't know anything, he just sort of speaks off and you shouldn't listen to him, that kind of persecution to verse 18 when it says they are now plotting to kill him. Think about all that. I, I, here's what I, I just want to do with the rest of our time. This, it isn't just this moment where you see Jesus claiming to be God. It is all through this story. The sovereign rule of God, the, the dominion of God as seen in Jesus is evident from moment one of this story. And, and let me just go back through it. I want to just point out 
Six ways that this story shows the sovereignty of God and Jesus. And if you're getting really nervous at this point going, wait, at this point in the sermon, he's giving me a six-point outline. Trust me, we'll move quickly through these, all right? First one is sovereign initiative. How does Jesus demonstrate God's sovereignty? Sovereign initiative. Why go to the pool of Bethesda? Why pick out this one individual man? Why this guy who didn't ask for anything, why heal this man? Why go and find this man again who didn't demonstrate faith in any way? Why go and track him down? Everything Jesus did in this account is, is purposeful. His teaching about the Sabbath is crucial. His warning to the man is about his sin is, is abundantly urgent. But in the end, Jesus found this man and healed this man and then found him again, even when it meant he would be identified as working on the Sabbath, all to lead to the remarkable conclusion of the discourse Jesus will give at the end of chapter 5 when he says, I have come to call the dead to life. Who says that apart from God? Who stands in Jerusalem and says that I have come to give life to those who are dead? Who has the power and the ability to do that except for God? And so this whole working of Jesus here is moving in that direction. And we see his initiative and where he goes and whose life he touches and how he pursues this particular man. This is about God coming as a man to rescue helpless, lost foolish sinners like you and I, and to save us. That's ultimately where this will, will lead to in chapter 5. And on his own sovereign initiative, Jesus chose this man to be healed so that he might become the impetus for a profound lesson about the identity of Jesus Christ. Second, sovereign knowledge. Verse 6, he sees the man lying there and it says he knew that he had already been there a long time. Jesus knew this man knew his circumstances intimately. This is Jesus who at the, at the well in Samaria said to the woman, asked her about getting her husband, and she tried to deflect on that. And he said, listen, I know you've been living a life of immorality at this point. I understand what you're searching for. I know the longing of your heart because Jesus knows, because Jesus understands the human heart, and he has, he's exercising his sovereign knowledge here in John chapter 5. Jesus is the one who at the end of John chapter 2, when the crowds were starting to grow, more and more people, and you think, ah, now he should just embrace this, this crowd. John 2.24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus didn't merely look around at the pool and see sick people. He looked at them and knew them, knew their lives, understood their needs. And in his sovereign knowledge, he knows what's in the heart of man. He knows what's in your heart and mine. And he comes to us as God with that sovereign knowledge. Third thing is sovereign mercy. His comment to the man, his question to the man is, do you want to be healed? The man's response is, I would submit to you, neither polite nor respectful. The man's response is not, why, yes, sir. I would love to be healed. Instead, the man's sort of this, understandably, sort of grumbling complaint at this point. Look, do I want to be healed? I've been here for all these years. I got no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred, and so here I sit. You think I want to be healed? I mean, look around. I, 
Jesus at this moment, despite this man's lack of faith, despite him really not even answering the questions, this guy with all circumstances stacked against him, couldn't get in the pool when it was time for a miracle, no understanding of Jesus, no faith, and Jesus shows mercy on this undeserving man and heals him. In fact, this is the same guy who went out of his way to get some angry rabbis and point them back to Jesus, and yet he healed him. And he not only cared for this man's body, but he then cared so for this man's soul that he pursued him to come after him again and to warn him and to say, listen, your life needs to change. It's changed for you already today, but that's not all there is to this. And essentially holds out sort of the the roots of the gospel. That is mercy. Imagine you or I walking into a scene like the Pool of Bethesda and being told, okay, you have one miracle that you can use. Choose whom you would put that miracle on. I don't know about you, but at least somewhere high on my list is you got to at least ask. You've got to at least nicely say, hey, I could use that miracle. And if you were to say something like, and I will owe you gratitude for the rest of my life, you know, okay, now we're talking. Now we're looking like you're the one. And that's not here. There's no compelling part on, on, the, for, on the part of this guy. God's mercy is his favor on people who are completely undeserving. And Jesus chooses to show mercy to this man who didn't even know him, who didn't ask for mercy. Jesus chose to sovereignly show the mercy of God to an undeserving soul. Fourth is Jesus' sovereign power. This guy was hopeless. 38 years of any sickness pretty well makes it clear that that you've run out of options, that there probably aren't going to be any more cures, that nobody has any more ideas, and in fact, that the fact that this guy is alone and there's nobody even to help him in the pool sort of indicates that even whatever family or close ones that were around him aren't even there with him at this point because this man is, it's at the end as far as options for, for healing this guy in some way. He's got nothing to cling to. And yet Jesus simply spoke three imperatives, three commands. Rise, grab your mat, and walk. Done. That's all. Jesus, by the the power of speaking to this man, not anything this man did, in contrary to anything this man did, he is healed by the power of Jesus Christ. John uses kind of language that we see in Mark when it talks about immediacy, sort of this rushing urgency that's in the Gospel of Mark, and it's a little bit here, this kind of breakneck. Immediately, he picks up his mat, and he walks. Jesus Christ exercised the power of God to do what no one else could do, to do what anyone else that knew this man wished they could have found a way to somehow help this guy walk, and no one could do it. Jesus Christ speaks, the Son of God, and by the power of his words, the man is completely healed. Sovereign initiative, knowledge, mercy, power, and fifth, sovereign judgment. In verse 14, when he finds the man, see, you're well, now don't sin anymore, or it'll get worse for you. We already know Jesus could do physical miracles. We've known that since John chapter 2 when he turned the water into wine at the wedding feast. We've seen that Jesus can do things. Even from afar, Jesus can heal the official son by just speaking the word. We've already seen that. But here is Jesus in the temple warning a man that, listen, paralysis is bad, but there's something far worse. Hard to imagine that 38 years of being unable to get up and walk, that, that seems horrible, 
But he says there's something that's even worse. If you persist in your sin, if you don't turn and repent, then those 38 years will seem like nothing to spending eternity separated from God, to being judged and condemned for your sin, nothing compared to the eternal judgment of God. Jesus ministered to people's physical needs, but far more than that, Jesus ministered to people's souls because it is our eternity that we have been made for. And, and, and so the, the physical healing is one thing, but he is infinitely more concerned for your soul and where you will spend eternity. He is powerful to heal physical illness, but that is not, he didn't come to just do that. He came to rescue sickened souls from a certain death, from a certain, a certain condemnation as a consequence of our sin, and to replace the, the rotting corpse of a sinning rebel with the abundant eternal life that only Jesus Christ can give. We see his sovereign ability to both condemn and to forgive and to offer life as the Son of God. Sovereign authority is the last one. Number six, sovereign authority. Verse 16 says the religious leaders were persecuting Jesus for doing things, these things on the Sabbath. This incident may have been one of several. John perhaps doesn't record everything here, but it's, it's the answer that Jesus gave that is so astonishing. He says to the Jewish leaders the point they can all agree on. God the Father is working, even today. Here it is on the Sabbath. We all agree on that part, okay? They're with him on that. But then Jesus says, my Father is working until now, and I am working. His defense at that point is either of two options. He, there, he is a man who is claiming to be above God's law and saying, listen, God the Father works, why can't I? So I'm, I'm just above that law or he is claiming to be God. I mean, that's the, that's the essence of what he's saying when he now says, God the Father's working, agreed? So am I. That is a direct correlation of himself, relation of himself to God the Father. D.A. Carson writes, Jesus insists that whatever factors justify God's continuous work from creation on also justify his. As God, Jesus not only had the right on the Sabbath to heal someone, but he had the right as Lord over the Sabbath to then tell that man to pick up his mat and carry it and walk around with it on the Sabbath. And he had the power, the authority then to turn that man, to, to warn that man to turn from sin. He had the authority to do all of these things because he is God. The response by the rabbis, we've read in verse 18, is they... They determine at this point that this, this can't go on. We must find a way to have this man condemned to death. And they began plotting toward that end because they have no doubt of what he is claiming. There's no question anymore that he's not just breaking the Sabbath. He is now claiming to be God. And so, friends, I would say that comes now to our response. You, you, can, you can choose to reject Jesus Christ and his claims to be God in flesh. But don't, don't settle on some squishy sort of, Jesus is okay, I'm glad that you believe in Jesus, and I think Jesus is wonderful, and I think his teaching is just great. I just don't really believe in him and this whole Savior thing. That option is not offered to you in Scripture to sort of lightweight Jesus at this point and say, eh, I don't know. It could, because his claim is he is declaring himself to be God with power over body and soul. You can either trust in him as that 
Or you can reject him, but you can't settle somewhere in the middle, even though people that we talk to do it all the time. It is utterly contrary to what Jesus claims. And if you believe that Jesus is the Christ who came to ransom your soul, then I would say to you the invitation of this passage is calling us to worship. This is a, this is a passage that should cause us to stand in awe of the mercy and the knowledge and the power of Jesus Christ, demonstrated at that pool in Bethesda, demonstrated now in, in his warning this man about his soul. We are seeing the sovereign greatness of Jesus Christ, and it should call us to worship because Jesus Christ came to you and I just like he came to that paralyzed man sitting underneath those roofs, to those who were helpless, to those who in some sense didn't even know what it was we were supposed to ask, didn't even fully grasp the, the, the level of the judgment that we await, and Jesus in his sovereign grace comes and presents himself to people who sometimes don't even know who he is going into it, and who suddenly by the gospel of Jesus Christ are awakened to new life. And who suddenly, by the word of Jesus at work in our hearts, are able to stand up, and pick up the mat, and walk, if you will. That should cause us to respond with such gratitude at Jesus coming to our lives at, at our helpless point, struggling to even know what we're supposed to do, and showing himself faithful to be the Son of God, who has come to give his life as a ransom for sinners and rising again to eternal life now to offer to you and I that forgiveness and that eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your sovereign plan to save a people for yourself. Lord, help us to again see in a passage like this, to see ourselves in the sense of people who who for perhaps fair portions of life were sort of like that man, not really sure what we needed, not perhaps even ready to exercise faith, still sort of apart from you and, and, and not sure what to think about spiritual truths. Father, we thank you for the kindness that you showed in bringing the gospel into the lives of your children in this room, each one of us can give a testimony that in some way reflects the reality that you came to us in our need and in our helpless state, and you rescued us from it. You saved us from our sin, and you gave us forgiveness and eternal life. Lord, we thank you for that. We are, we are enabled now by your spirit to worship, to express gratitude, to to point to you as the one who has sent his son to be our savior. And Lord Jesus, we are thankful for showing your, your mercy to sinners like us. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here this morning who is not yet trusting in Jesus Christ as savior, might this be the day when you bring sight to the blind, life to those who are dead. Might you open their eyes to see that Jesus Christ came to save from sin, came to rescue sinners. Lord, we pray that you would do a, a profound work of continuing to, even through this week, remind us that our physical trials and afflictions are all part of a, 
a greater plan for you to bring glory to yourself through us. Help us to, to glorify you through those experiences, to, to give thanks to you, to be people who would constantly show the greatness of our Savior Jesus Christ, regardless of whether we are facing good times or bad, as we might define it in worldly terms. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.